0: The following content is provided under a Creative Commons license. Your support will help MIT OpenCourseWare continue to offer high quality educational resources for free. To make a donation or view additional materials from hundreds of MIT courses, visit MIT OpenCourseWare at ocw.mit.edu. So today what we want to do is, uh, is use the two papers that you read as kind of a backdrop to try to think something about uh, the regulation of genes in response to changing environments. Right, so there's the Mitchell paper uh, that is talking about this idea of uh, anticipatory regulation, whereby if the environmental changes have some typical pattern, then maybe the cells can take advantage of that and start preparing for environment number two when, it see- when the cell sees environment number one. But uh, in other cases, it may, be the- it may be that the environment fluctuates in ways that are really fundamentally unpredictable. In that case, you can't use this sort of anticipatory regulator- regulation strategy. But instead, uh, there uh, there may be a way that you can just stochastically switch between the different strategies, and uh, and implement what's known as a bet hedging strategy. And this is uh, modeled largely on the work that uh, that you read just read about in the Crusell paper, Science, maybe 2005. Something. Okay. All right. I, I do want to stress, however, that. If you observe phenotypic heterogeneity in a clonal population, uh, that does not necessarily mean that the cell or the population is implementing one of these bet hedging strategies. All right. In particular, uh, I would argue rather strongly that there are other possible evolutionary drivers for such phenotypic heterogeneity in the population. Okay. First of all, just because you see some phenomenon does not mean that it was necessarily selected for. Okay. So it's possible that it's a side effect of something else. Right. However. If you're looking for an evolutionary kind of explanation for something like this, uh, bet hedging is not the only one. In particular, uh, we'll talk about two other possible explanations, and they both have to do with kind of game dynamics that uh, we might have uh, illuminated or talked about. But I guess our game theory talk was—that was a week and a half ago, almost two weeks ago now. So maybe you've forgotten all the game theory that we we discussed. But uh, in particular, it could be that this phenotypic heterogeneity might be the implementation of a mixed strategy, or possibly it could be. Uh, an example of some sort of altruistic self-sacrifice. And uh, I'll, we'll try to explain the theory behind each of these three things, as well as possible biological examples of each of the three. Right. In this case, we may think about uh, bet hedging as uh, as maybe a, an explanation for, uh, for antibi- antibiotic persistence, this idea that cells can switch into these slow-growing persister states in which they're resistant to antibiotics and other stresses. Mixed strategies could be. Uh, well, we're going to argue it could be in, uh, implemented in the context of mixed sugar environments. Uh, and altruistic self-sacrifice uh, may be the explanation behind uh, colicin production in, uh, in bacteria. All right, so it's a toxin. All right. All right, so I want to start by thinking about this, uh, this thing about a- adaptive prediction of environmental changes uh, by Mitchell. I think this is a very interesting paper in in a number of different ways. Uh, One is I think that it's sort of a big idea that uh, can be explored in these simple experiments. Uh, I think that it's an exceptionally clear paper in some ways, and that they really say, oh, we're going to propose that this strategy should be characterized by these three things. right? And then they go and they try to show you the three things. Uh, The figures, I think, are also uh, very nice in the sense that in many of the cases, you could, have, uh, you could have shown the data just in the context of a, a table where you said, oh, for each of these strains, this is the up amount of upregulation or so. But if you had done that, it would have been much, I think, less c- compelling, even though, of course, it's the same, same data. Right? So I think this is a neat paper, uh, both in my opinion, both from the standpoint of the ideas that are being explored, but also because it highlights some of the things that you should be thinking about when you're writing your own papers. Right? You want to try to make. Uh, the idea as clear as possible. You want to lay the groundwork so that what you're about to show is going to be the reader is going to feel like it's a really important thing, uh, and um, and then you want to make you know you take nice advantage of color and some, some legends that are there. All right, so we'll kind of talk about that all these issues as we go. Okay. But before we get started, can somebody just I think that there's a very real sense that in this field of decision making and uh, systems biology that a lot of this research program is kind of driven by following classic ideas from other fields. Right? And what's the, what's sort of the, what would be the corresponding classic idea that this paper is, is exploring? Conditioning. Conditioning, right? Um, and, and, and whose name do we associate with conditioning, typically? Pavlov. All right, so I, I have not ever read these studies. Pavlovian conditioning. And I think that this is just its good to highlight. This is something that you might have learned in your high school psychology class. Right? And it's, it's, uh, it's a, again, a you know, big idea. But it's not the kind of thing we've all heard. Well, many of we're going to talk about this in a moment. Many of us, I think, have heard of this. But uh, this is an example of how you take something that you learned in high school and you make it uh, useful to your daily life or pseudo daily life. Because okay? uh, I think you'll see that there are many kind of examples of this. Uh, throughout, throughout this literature, where someone takes an idea that is, in some ways, you, know, you open up a, norm, a random textbook in introductory psychology and you can just march through and try to see to what degree the ideas that were developed in the context of humans or animals, uh, to what degree might they be relevant in, in, in the context of cell decision making. Right? Can somebody just say what is this Pavlovian conditioning idea? Did you guys take high school psychology? Or some, I'm sure somebody did. No. All right, well, I, incidentally, I, I recommend everybody should take a solid introductory psychology class. If you have not done so, we offer a class 900. I'm sure that it's good and interesting. So yes. Um. That's right. All right, so there's sort of some sense that what we might call um, you know there's there are two ev- you know events of some sort one is following the other one, right? So it's it's A and then followed by B. And what, what is the st- there are many, people have demonstrated many different examples of this, but what's the one that we typically what what's the classic experiment that Pavlov did? You ring a bell and then you get you know, Yeah. Right, so you ring a bell And then you give um, you give food, okay? and this is this is dogs, uh, at least in in the in the version that I remember, right? Uh, so you, you have some dogs, You know, right, you, t- you do this thing where you ring the bell, and then you give them the food, and and what is the uh, what's the response that you kind of are supposed to get? Drawing. Yeah, right. So the, the dog is supposed to start salivating, I, you know. And I okay, so you might think that your experiments are gross, but uh, <laughs> right. So the ring bell, and, and the idea is that you can train the dog to start salivating in response to the bell, where rather than, of course, if you give them the food, they're going to start salivating. But here, you can train the dog to start salivating in response to the food. Okay. So now, uh, with training, this results in salivation. Okay. All right. and did Pavlov show there was a fitness benefit associated with the salivation? Not that I'm, not that I'm aware of. Okay. So, but this is, this is this is the classic story that that we learn in uh, in introductory psychology, and, and the question is, can we uh, can we apply a similar idea in the case of microbial decision making? Right. Now, was uh, was this? Can somebody get, say maybe what they think was the their the author's contribution to the literature in the sense of vis a vis this? I mean, how much of what? Uh, well, we can be maybe more concrete. In the case of E. coli, what you know, what what was, what was known, or, or maybe we should describe the experiment a little more and then try to figure out what they did that was new, new, right? but at least can somebody kind of summarize the basic idea with E. coli? Right, so the, the E. coli exist in different environments. And what environments are you referring to? Gut and outside. Gut and outside. OK, so this is true. OK, but, Okay. But then what is what's what is going to be your next statement based on this? Well, um, I mean, going through mammalian guts, there's always a certain right. sequence of events. That, like in the beginning, there's some an acid, and then like, afterwards, it's like less acid and more food and stuff like yeah. that. Yeah. OK, right. So the, so the, okay. in the context of E. coli, there's this idea that uh, okay, part of the life cycle of E. coli and some other uh, of, the, of these microbes is to live inside the gut of of mammals, right? Okay, and we and we're going to focus in particular on this aspect, the the part of the life cycle that is in the gut. Okay, so let's just imagine. Okay, so E. coli, uh, you know, in gut or entering the gut, going through the gut, uh, they they might encounter some sort of uh, typical environmental cues, or maybe. Uh, environment, uh, orders of environmental exposure, right? And actually, even before this paper, there was another paper that was published by uh, Saeed Tavazoi hard name to pronounce, who was at Princeton at the time, right? So he had published a Science paper just, I think, the year before, well, a couple years before, uh, demonstrating a related phenomenon. Right? What was it that, uh, what was it that this other paper had demonstrated? Does anybody remember from the introduction? So it wasn't the experiment that these guys did, but in the introduction they did. They spent half a paragraph describing this other experiment. Another kind of environmental cue that E. coli get when they enter the gut. So what's what? Yeah. All right. Temperature increase and oxygen decrease. All right. Temperature increase and oxygen decrease. Right. So temperature. (laughs) goes up, and oxygen goes down. And this makes sense. Right? The inside of our body is typically warmer than outside our body. Also, it's a relatively anaerobic environment inside the gut as compared to uh, ready availability of oxygen outside. Okay. And so what, what, was this, what is it that this other paper then, then showed? Yes. Okay. And we always and the word adapt, we always have to be very careful because it, because it can mean two very different things. Uh, and and in some cases it might be that both possibly it might be true. But when you when you say that it receives one stimulus, right? So this we might call S one. All right. And this is S two. So these are stimuli that the cell senses. Right, you're saying that it might sense one and then it adapts to both. When you say adapt, what kind of a, are you referring to evolutionary adaptation or something else? Yes, sir to a single cell implementing a program. Right. That, that's sort of cell model. level adaptation. right? The, the sort of default thing is you might say, well, if you, if you get the stimuli 1, an increase in temperature, you should, you should implement the program 1 or the response 1 that corresponds to some uh, set of genes that are required to, to grow in high temperature. Right? Uh, now, similarly with stimulus 2. Right. OK, well, we'll just say this is R2. Right. So these, these could, in principle, have different, uh, different gene network responses uh, uh, to these two environmental changes. But what they found is that, actually, if you take E. coli and you expose it to an increase in temperature, then not only does it activate the genes required to handle high temperature, but it also activates the genes required to handle low oxygen right? and vice versa. Okay. Now. There, there's a question, though. If you see this, it could just be the case that you've mislabeled what really is R1, R2. Maybe it's just there's just a single R, single response that allows the population to adapt to both of those environmental changes. All right. Does anybody remember what the authors did to to show that that was maybe not what was going on? You can look at your sheet of paper while I I just want to write down the, the reference in case anybody wants to look at this more. This is tug. Right, so it's science 2008. Well, what would you do if you wanted to show that these were that this was a real regulatory strategy, this so-called symmetric. Anticipatory regulation. Yes? Right. Okay. Right. So you could, you could expose to this stimulus, measure gene expression. Expose to this stimulus, measure gene expression, and try to figure out maybe based on the difference which genes were more or less. But I, the argument was somehow that that in response to stimulus one, there were some genes that were were really unnecessary. So you might, I guess, you could go and you could do knockouts of each of these hundred genes, and then try to and try to measure the effects. It, yeah. And, and that, that would be. Uh, that would be a nice dir- direct, thing. and it's related to something that they did in this paper with the yeast, and that they went and looked at these the gene expression profiles. Right. Uh, what, they, uh, what they did in, in, in this uh, in this paper by Said was that they uh, they exposed the, they took the E. coli that displayed this what they're arguing is a symmetric, and and, ba- and based on some previous studies, I think that had saying that oh. This had been annotated to be good for temperature, but not for oxygen, and vice versa. Right? So there were sort hints that this kind of made sense. But what they did is they evolved the populations in just one of these environments and showed that they could decouple them. Okay, So that's, that's at least making you feel that it's a little bit, um, you know, that, that maybe this, this was not due to just some sense that, that it's the same genes that are required for protection against these two environments, but rather that uh, because they had evolved uh, in this, In this environment, where when they see an increase in temperature, they often see a decrease in oxygen. Right. So when you say decouple, you mean like you evolve them in high temperature environments. That's right. Expose them to oxygen and they die. No, 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 no. So just they showed that if you evolve, if you evolve the population so that it it receives this stimulus without this stimulus, then it removes this arrow, that it stops activating these genes. Right? And, then, and then, I think you can, then I think they also did look at a function, the functional consequences. But the first sort of thing is just that they saw that you know, they could remove one of these arrows, which is related to something that they, they do here as well. Okay. All right. Now, I, I think that it's, it's worth thinking about the question of whether this study published in Science in 2008, do you think that it's a complete scoop of the paper that you just read? which is Amir Mitchell's paper published in Nature in 2009. No, OK. Uh, and on one level, he said, well, they still got it published in Nature, so, so therefore, it was not a scoop. But uh, I can tell you that, that Amir was very uh, very worried because <laughs> when, when, you know, he had been working on this paper for many years. Uh, you know, they they really they studied both E. coli and yeast. It's a major thing, and then this paper came out, and I, I'm sure that he was, you know, he was despondent. And there will be times where you feel despondent as a result of something like this coming out, because it really is a very similar idea. And indeed, the E. coli stuff is very similar, right? Because it's same organism, same ideas in the gut, right? But uh, yeah, so in, in what ways do you think that they they're, they're paper is different, and also, what strategies did they follow in order to differentiate their paper? Yeah? They essentially went and tried to find the differing regulation mechanism. So they said, well, there's the symmetric regulation mechanism that someone talked about last year, and we've got the asymmetric one. That's right. And I think that this is a, I think, of course, we cannot replay history. But uh, they, I think that they do a very nice thing on figure one of, of laying the groundwork to make it very clear that their work is different from you know, Said's work. And of course, depending, the thing is that if, if this had not been published, they maybe would have framed their work differently. Right? I and mean, they might not have had the diff- this difference between a symmetrical anticipatory regulation and the asymmetrical. Right? But by, by laying things out that way, it clarifies that, oh yeah, these are different things. And they're going to explore this one, whereas uh, Saeed's group had, had explored you know, a rather d- a different mechanism. But then, of course, depending on how you look at it, they're either more or less similar. But I think that they do a very nice job of kind of uh, right at the beginning setting out how their work is going to be different. Right. And uh, right. So they explain that there's there, you know, there's the simple direct sensing mechanism, where you'd say that you just have different stimuli that lead to different responses. that's fine. They also have the stochastic switching, which we're going to talk about more. The idea here is that even though we might be getting different stimuli, at some rates, we would still switch into these different responses. And we'll talk about various reasons that this might happen. Incidentally, similarly, the, these things don't have to happen at the same rates. Right, so it could be that stimulus 1, it primarily does R1, whereas stimulus 2, it primarily does R2, for example. If, you know, if you'd like, you could the, these, these arrows could have different strengths. Okay. Right, but then what they do is they point out that there really are, we can think about, well, this symmetric anticipor- anticipatory regulation, where it is crossed. Maybe I'll just write out the asymmetric one. Can somebody say why it is that we might want to do the asymmetrical as compared to the symmetrical? This, this, the important thing is here that this is because it's at the same time. Right, the two stimuli kind of come together uh, or very sim- you know, similar times. Whereas this, if, if there's a clear temporal order. Right? Uh, but I think that there, you could think about this in some other ways as well, maybe. Can somebody? Right so depending on the costs, it could change how uh what's sort of optimal perhaps right um, and, it, and i and i I think it's also perhaps worth just saying that it, it may also depend upon how frequent these different environmental perturbations are because you can also imagine situations where uh, you know that it's very common that temperature goes up uh, but it's very rare that oxygen goes down and it, but that some there's a, there could be a sense in which this is. Basically, based on the logic I just said, this would be then less predictive of this than this would be of this. Do you guys see what I'm saying? Because right? it could be the case that any time the oxygen goes down, then you, know, you really know that that means you're, you're entering somebody's gut, and you also better activate this. Right? Whereas it could also be the case that you know, if you sit out in the sun, you get hot, it doesn't mean that oxygen is going to go down. Right? So it could be that there is more or less information, uh, or that each of the stimuli have uh, more or less information about another stimuli. So even if they, even if there's no temporal order, it could be the case that some, something like that could lead to a situation where this might be optimal. Yeah. This, sorry. It, it seems. I mean, the people try to make formal statements about information it, in this context, just like they did in the context of stochastic. Yeah. Um, yeah. So there's some of it. I think. I haven't seen anything that's quite as clear and formal as what, uh, what uh, Ido Cussell did in that science paper you guys just read. Uh, but for example, the, Amir did do a paper. He wrote a PNAS paper uh, basically laying out um, the, this model that was sort of sketched at the end of uh, this paper uh, a little bit in more detail in terms of explaining, depending on the probability that something occurs and the times, and, you know, so kind of exploring this a little bit more. But not, I think not as formal in terms of information as That's right. I think think it's true, but but it could also be that because these things are both fluctuating and they are measured with some noise and the environment, there could be a sense that, um, because you can imagine a world in which uh, these two things are both uncertain predictors of whether you're in the gut. But if they both go, then that really means something, in which case. Yeah, then then it would it would it would make sense to really look at both of them and then activate both more you know strongly as a result of seeing both. That's true, but uh, you know if you say oh well this happens at a low rate and this happens at a low rate, then the probability that both of them happen at the same time would then be very small. So your rate of false positive in that sense would be. I think really you can really reduce the rate of false positives by uh, integrating both pieces of information. Okay. All right. And this paper, just to remind ourselves, this paper is primarily exploring the idea of asymmetrical anticipatory regulation. Right? And their argument is because there's a typical temporal order uh, to how, uh, how E. coli that are ingested uh, encounter different uh, sugar, right? All right. and and the claim in the paper is that bacteria will typically see what before what. Right. So the claim is that uh, in the gut, the bacteria will see lactose before they see maltose. Now, in order to evolve, evolve this asymmetrical anticipatory regulation, uh, does it have to be that you kind of always see lactose before you see maltose? All right, so let, let's imagine that only 10 percent of the time that the bacteria see lactose or sorry,, yeah, only 10 percent of the time that the bacteria encounter maltose, that they actually saw lactose before. Does that, since that's since 10% is much less than one, should that totally scotch this whole mechanism? No. And can can you say why not? Every time they see lactose, then they see maltose. That's right. And in some ways, that's not the right way to think about that. Uh, think about it. But then, but uh, in terms of a cost-benefit type argument, why is it that maybe it's okay in principle that maltose is frequently observed without lactose? Right. Okay. I think and I think that this is a kind of an interesting important point which is that if you imagine a competition between the strain that just does we can imagine direct sensing versus we'll call that AAR. So, uh, direct direct sensing versus the an asymmetrical anticipatory regulation. Now, if if you imagine the situation where you encounter lactose without or sorry, you encounter maltose without encounter lactose, then Actually, these two strategies behave essentially identically. right? Because uh, they both just see the maltose. They're both surprised. They both activate the mole genes. Everything's fine. Okay? Um, however, it's, it's in this other direction that you have to think about it. right? So the real question is, when you encounter lactose, you want to think about, well, what fraction of the time and how long of a delay is there before you encounter maltose? Okay? Because if it's the case that you encounter lactose a lot, and only infrequently do you then come onto maltose. That's going to be a problem for evolving this into asymmetrical regulation. and regulation, or a problem or that it would not necessarily be optimal to do so. Because in that case, you're <coughs> going to be activating all those uh, malt genes in advance, and frequently they, it, won't come, it won't be useful. Okay. And, and this is relevant perhaps just because uh, I don't know what fraction of the time do you think that E. coli going to the gut? will encounter lactose? We shouldn't be able to make a reasonable estimate of this is my claim. All right, where does lactose come from? All right, lactose comes. From milk, All right. um, Which animals have uh, I don't know, which animals drink milk? Well, uh, right. Okay, so we're we're thinking about mammals. So just take a random mammal of your choice. You might want to not choose humans, just because we're uh, we're a little bit atypical in this regard. Although even there, I think the numbers end up being kind of the same. But you know, imagine. You know, a dog or a bear, right? <laughs> you know your favorite favorite mammal. Okay, which which of them are drinking milk? The young. the young, right? Okay, so you know, there's some period of one's life where you drink milk. There's, and then you know, as an adult, you typically don't, right? So you, I guess, all I'm saying is that if you imagine uh, the bacteria entering into a mammalian gut, it might be, you know, twenty percent. I, I don't know what it, you know, but it's some. It's, it's, it's the, basically the proportional to the years. OK, the kids, they may eat more dirty things, and so you have to wait it. Whatever. The point is that uh, you know, it's, you know, you, they're going to encounter lactose if they enter the gut of a, uh, of a baby or young child. Uh, whereas uh, if, you go into a, if, if you enter an adult, then you won't see the lactose, and you'll just maybe then directly see the maltose. Okay? But there's no real cost associated with missing that signal vis-a-vis the so-called direct strategy. Um. All right, I, I think that they do have—they uh, do lay out some other kind of conditions that they think would be uh, would be reasonable to to demonstrate if you want to do this anticipatory or the, the asymmetrical anticipatory, anticipatory regulation. Uh, and once again, I think that this is both very clear and uh, and also just lays the groundwork for the reader in the sense that they tell you what they would need to show in order to, for you to be convinced. And then they go and they do those things. Right? Now, in principle, you could argue about one of the other things, but I think that they're, they're, they do such a nice job of being clear about what would be needed that you don't even uh, think to object about, about any of it. Right? And of course, they're not going to bring up the three things that they would need to demonstrate unless they actually were able to demonstrate those three things. right? Um, right so the, the, the three things that they, they claim is that for this uh, this for this to have been an evolved trait, that pre-exposure to S1 increases the fitness under S2 or R2. Yeah, I guess in this case the the. That's right. Okay, so getting S1 helps you in S2. So get, you know, seeing lactose helps you in maltose. Right. Indeed, they're going to show that. Um, second that there's some cost associated with upregulating that. right? In this case, upregulating the mole genes. Uh, and third, there's this idea of specificity. Now, the claim is that it's really S1 that is activating this R2 response, and that various other S's, in this case, other sugar sources, maybe should not preactivate. Now, in, in Figure One, they basically they basically are exploring uh, the difference between this arrow and this one, right? So, if you expose the cells to maltose, you activate the malt genes at a high level, right? Is it required that exposure to lactose upregulates the malt genes up to the same level as as, as maltose? No. Uh, was it at the same level as maltose? No. Right. But the idea is it upregulates at some as compared to other carbon sources.. Right. Now uh, it's, uh, they, they also made a comment about whether this arrow, this so-called anticipatory regulation, um, whether it was specific to their E. coli strain, and their claim was that it was was or was not. I mean, would it be good for it to be specific to their strain or bad or probably bad? Um, although the fact that, they, but then they, you know they say, oh, it's not specific to to our strain, and, right, and then they cite another paper, right? Which from um, and this is again a nice way of phrasing it. Right? Because they're adding strength to their paper. Because they're saying, oh, it's not just our strain. It's in other strains as well. Right? So you read that sentence, you say, yes, this, that's good. Right? Of course, you could read that sentence, saying, oh, but somebody else already showed this. Right. Uh, you know, but, but this is, again, uh, I think, uh, I, I, and I, I don't have any, I don't have any com- real complaint about that. Because I think that what they've done is they've really brought a set of measurements together in one conceptual framework that I think is rather compelling. Uh, now, of course, you can always argue about whether each of these examples really did evolve for this purpose or not, and, and so forth. But uh, just because somebody else had seen that there was some cross regulation, right, of the MOL genes in, respect, in response to lactose, doesn't mean that this paper is worthless. Okay? But I think, um, but uh, but it's worth no- You know, but it is interesting to note that somebody else had already had already seen this. Okay? Moreover, in Figure One, they they compare. Uh, this uh, asymmetrical anticipatory regulation for their wild-type strain as compared to another strain. And what other strain did they use? Yes. They let the cells, or they didn't expose the cells to maltose after lactose? Right. So they evolved the cells in lactose for, Five hundred generations, right? And and then what did they see? That's right. What they saw was that evolution. Uh, and this is in lactose. Remove that arrow. Now, uh, five hundred generations. How long do you think this is going to take them? A few months, right? Um, Have you guys ever heard of any other paper where they evolved E. coli in lactose for 500 generations? In your extensive reading of the literature that you've engaged in over this semester? The cost benefit paper, right? So uh, it's fascinating to note. That this sentence, they said, they said we have examined laboratory evolved strains of E. coli, right? Did they say that they did the evolution? No, they didn't. And indeed, if you follow citation fourteen over here, you know, you can say, all oh, right, it's a, it's a, yeah. So it's it's a it's another paper by Uri and and, and company. And so I, I you know, I, so I I don't know if it was the exact same experiment, but you know, but the idea is that. Uh, so, I think what they did is they, they took the strains that were evolved for another purpose. And that's fine, right? If somebody else already did the daily dilutions for three months, that is the exact same that you were going to do, then you might as well just analyze their evolved strains, right? There's no, nothing that says you have to go and repeat the work. Right? It's, you would get the same thing, maybe, presumably. Okay? So, this is uh, it's just worth highlighting, but it makes the paper much stronger that right? they were able to do that. Okay? So, it's good to keep in mind that uh, in some cases, what you need to do to make your point, has already uh, been done or has already been evolved and so forth. right? So now what we have is a situation where uh, somebody else maybe has already seen that, uh, that lactose activates maltose. Somebody else already did this evolution on lactose. They, they didn't yet show that, that this regulation was removed. right? So that was something that these guys had to do. And indeed, it looks like it's removed. Okay, But, uh, but once again, I think there's a sense that they're really uh, looking at this problem from kind of a new, maybe comprehensive way that allows them to see the connections between all these different experiments. And then they, you know, and they, do, they are doing new measurements, but the measurements themselves are perhaps relatively simple, but it's, the trick is knowing what measurements you need to do in order to say something that's very interesting. Okay. All right, and then fi- all right, so and then figure three. What they went and they did is they asked about this question of whether there really is a fitness benefit associated with it. Okay. Now, I think this is another case where you could have made this figure in the form of a table, and it really uh, and it just would not be very compelling. right? So you'd look at it and you just wouldn't be very excited by it. Uh, whereas in this case, uh, they, have, they have the figure, which are these, these fitness advantages associated with whether you take the strains, you first expose them to lactose and then go to maltose, or you go from maltose to lactose, or in this case, gal to maltose, sucrose to maltose. What they showed is that it was um, a selective benefit there. Right? That the cells really only gain the benefit of um, pre-exposure to a sugar if it's, if it's lactose. Right? And they show that uh, that for the evolved strain, it uh, not only does it no longer have that arrow in the sense of the response, but it also no longer has the benefit. Which is good to do both of those measurements because it's possible that you might have missed something, right? Yeah. That's right. Lateral. Yep. Yep. Uh, and this is the nature of science, or in particular this kind of science. I think that you can, you can make, you can collect data that is, that is consistent with the sort of this interpretation, but it, it does not at all prove that. Because this is not a gut, either. Right? Uh, and so, in, yeah, and so you could have imagined experiments where you maybe mixed two strains that follow this direct versus the AR, and you, you mix them together 50-50 in the gut, and then you go and you do sequencing later. And actually, people do such kinds of experiments. And in some cases, they're, they're, some, amazingly, sometimes something comes out the other end that is um, interesting. Sorry, I couldn't help myself. Sorry about that. <laughs> um, so yes. Ah, one other point on this paper, uh, they even are this figure that they even color code the data points, right? So they they have their main thing in this black, but then they, the other ones are red, yellow, blue, to tell us about whether it's telling us that this thing is that it's the is directional, right? It's s1, s2, as compared to s2, s1. You know specificity, extinction, right? So they are even kind of telling us what each of those data points mean, and and if you know, you might say, oh, that's kind of overkill. But given that it's just so important that you're keeping track of what why we're doing each of these measurements and what it's supposed to tell us about the big story, I think that it's really, I think it's just wonderful to be reminded, okay, well, you know, what, you know, why it, you know, what what's the what is this controlling for or whatnot, you know? Okay. Yes. Uh, yes. Well. This, okay. But this is um, all right. So, uh, we we can lead entire discussions about um, about both how to write a paper and how to read a paper. Uh, how to read a paper is that you should just get a color printer. Okay. So that's that's the advice. Um, in terms of how to write a paper, I would I would say though that it, it's always good to um, you should take advantage of colors, but you should choose the color scheme slash scale such that it um, is legible or compelling in both uh, color and black and white. And actually, you can. Uh, there's a very nice set of um, set of articles written by uh, Wang, uh, who's a who's a graphic artist that works at the Broad. He wrote uh, maybe 15 different uh, kind of one or two page articles for Nature Methods, basically just about how to write figures. And he talks about these different color scales and that you know there's uh, what do the words mean when it's uh, it's the there's brightness. Uh, okay, I can't. Color, hue, saturation. Okay, I can't remember what all these things mean anymore, but that's why you um, you should read the articles, and it's it's fascinating stuff, actually. Okay. Okay. So this is uh, so this is the basic argument that they made uh, that they made in this paper, right? That um, because E. Coli are exposed to a typical order of carbon sources in the mammalian gut, that it Possibly, that's the possible explanation for why this, uh, this thing evolved, that they can measure experimentally, which is that when these E. coli, they see lactose, they start activating the all genes, but not vice versa. Okay. Now, like always, you can't, um, you can't prove that this is what's going on. I think it's a very interesting set of ideas. Uh, some of the, the people that study gut microbes just think that it's implausible that it, this, this would actually work out in the sense that the fitness Cost, benefits, et cetera, would be relevant, and you know, do we know that the time scales even work out? I, I don't know how, you know. So there are a bunch of things that you could worry about, and I, I, would say I don't know enough about what goes on in the gut to actually have have an educated opinion on that point. Uh, but I think that the, um, but I think it's a very kind of clear exposition of um, of the ideas. Okay. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, and I guess uh, right. I, okay, so I I myself definitely do not know what fraction of E. coli are in the gut as compared to in the soil or in the. Uh, you know, it's not that E. coli are the dominant bacteria in our gut either. It's just that they are, you know they do enter the gut at some rate. So yeah, I, and then the question is, I'm not even sure if we if we knew the answer, I don't even know if it would if it would tell us. I mean, it gives some guidance, right? But there, there's also a question of where is it that the cells are actually dividing, right? Because it could be the case that the life cycle is that they, they go in the gut, and that's where they're dividing and happy. And then they uh, they end up in some soil somewhere, and they're they're in some stationary phase. And maybe most of them are dying, and just at some small rate, eventually some of them get uptaken again, and then they divide, divide, divide. So it, it could be the case that only 0.1% of all E. coli, or 0.1% of the time, you know, it could be a very small amount of time or something, and that they're in the gut, but it could still be the dominant event in their lives, right? So I, I yeah, so I, I just don't know. Uh, I think I'm uh, maybe going to skip the the second half of the talk or second half of the paper, where they they discuss this idea of um, the typical order of events in which uh, in in which yeast in the context of of fermentation and making wine might have might encounter experience different environmental assaults and and it's a similar kind of idea of cross protection against different uh, different assaults, right? Uh, But in some ways, this is really it's, it's sort of two mini papers. Uh, that um, that tie together in this general thing of uh, anticipatory regulation. Are there any questions uh, about this before we before we move on? Yes. Ah, okay. So your question is whether E. coli in the gut of adults have this, right? Okay, so I I don't know, but my feeling is that um, that that these things are are probably fairly transient in the sense that um, you probably don't have. Well, certainly on on in, in the from the standpoint of of entering the gut. The bacteria don't have any choice about whose gut they enter, right? So it probably is going to be the case that they have to have a basic strategy that is going to work across both adults and um, and the kids. Although it's true that the gut communities in kids are different from adults, and so so, but it's hard to know what to make of that, right? Yeah. All right. Okay. That's a, that's a good question. Uh, I know that I've I've heard people talking about it, but I, I can't point to a specific example of where it's where it's it's been convincing. Yeah, that doesn't mean it doesn't. It's not out there, though. Yeah. But it's a it's a very important, interesting question. Right? Um, okay. All right, all right, so what what we want to do now is, is kind of switch gears a little bit and and. Switch to this topic. Of it's going to be kind of partly about phenotypic heterogeneity, but partly again about uh, fluctuating environments. And the way that those two topics are related is via bet hedging. But I just want to highlight that, um, you know, bet hedging is a way of using phenotypic heterogeneity in order to survive fluctuating environments, right? Whereas it's not the only way, or the only explanation for this phenotypic heterogeneity, right? Uh, Right, so yeah, I think maybe we'll come, all right, I'll read. OK, so, so first of all, on the topic of phenotypic heterogeneity, when we, when we say that, we are often uh, referring to the fact that even clonal populations can be remarkably heterogeneous in a given environment. All right, so we'll say phenotypic heterogeneity in clonal populations. Because, of course, if there's a lot of genetic diversity in the population, then it's not, perhaps, a surprise there would be phenotypic heterogeneity. Right. All right, what we're going to do is uh, go through these three different possible explanations and discuss uh, maybe canonical biological examples of each. All right, and the, uh, the examples that I'm, we're going to give uh, well, the, the classic example is, is in the context of seed germination, uh, but more recently, there's this uh, question of uh, per, the per, uh, persister cells, or the persistence phenotype. Okay. Okay. Now, in both of these cases, it's really a way in which a clonal population can send a small population of either seeds or cells into a protected state that is protected against some assault. Okay? All right, so seed germination. All right, this is a case where the seed, if it doesn't germinate, it's protected against droughts. <coughs> Ooh, drought Uh, and this one maybe is antibiotics. All right. So what I want to do is just make sure that we're um, we understand the seed germination idea. All right, so th- this is uh, in the, in the, from the standpoint of ecology the, these ideas came out I don't know in the 70s at least okay. All right so w- what we can imagine is a situation where you are some maybe desert annual, okay. Uh, and you, uh, right? So you, so you, you send out these seeds, right? Now most, uh, most of the time, you know, you get enough rain that the, the seeds are fine. They can they can germinate, sprout the little seedlings, and uh, and they'll be able to to grow up just fine. But at some rate, there um, there might be a severe drought that would kill all the cells that actually germinated. Okay. So the question is, what might be the uh, the optimal optimal strategy? All right. So for example, let's just imagine that we we live in a world in which Seventy-five uh, percent of the time, there's uh, there's rain. Twenty-five uh, percent of the time, there's no rain. Okay. Now, if you germinate, all right. So a particular seed, if it germinates, okay, pops out. Then uh, you can it will expect to send two seeds to the following year. Okay? Whereas if it, if it germinates and there's no rain, then it only has a 10% probability of surviving, or that uh, it can, on average, send uh, 1 uh, tenth of a seed to the next generation. Okay? Now, of course, you don't have to germinate if you, uh, if you don't germinate. Then what happens is that you just send one seed to, that, to the next year. Right. If you'd like, you could include some probability that the seed doesn't survive. But for simplicity, we can do that. Okay. All right. So the, uh, the idea is that you don't know whether it's going to rain or not. But what you can do is you can either germinate or not germinate. And then uh, this tells us how many seeds make it to the following year. Do you understand the framework? Okay. All right. So the question is, which one of these strategies uh, has a higher long-term growth rate in terms of the number of seeds that you have in the population? I'm going to give you um, yeah, 30 seconds just to kind of think about this, play with the numbers a little bit. All right. And the question is um, should you just have a strategy where you germinate or don't germinate? And then what we're going to find maybe is that the optimal strategy is to have a, do this probabilistically. But it's useful to just play with such numbers for a little bit. So the physics office, unfortunately, is trying to steal our cards from us, right, So we don't have them, but what we're going to instead do is um, if you think that you want to germinate, you raise your left hand. If you don't want to germinate, raise your right hand. Okay? All right, Ready? Three, two, one. All right, so we have a fair distribution of, okay, it's actually it really is kind of 50/50 oh, that's interesting. Right, what All right, let's go ahead and, and um, yeah, let's spend you know, a minute. Turn to your neighbor and and try to convince them that it's either better to germinate or not. I just I mean, like, 3 <laughs> Oh, wait, no, I did that wrong. Well, let us <laughs> build this one. Any of them are going Yeah. you know, you can start with 100 all right, of 100 of another, and then just. Yeah. So okay, let's say 10 to the 4. 4. So we're trying to not think about this, I mean. <laughs> I, mean I mean, what's the cost I mean. so go the it's, it's close. Right. And, and yeah, so, right, so there's another question about short-term versus long-term, and we're actually N- trying to n- not worry about that, so you can think about large po- yeah. populations. So it's really uh, that's why I said the long-term growth of the population. So it's, if we if we just compare. Um, right. So why don't we reconvene? And yeah. Um, right. So the, various people have been talking about the question of of how many. Um, How many seeds you're starting with? What the population size is? Because you have to worry about extinction, and that's another kind of interesting question of short-term versus long-term kind of payouts and fitness. But that's actually not the effect that we're trying to to get at right now. So we can even think about this uh, in the limit of just large population sizes. And we want to compare the two strategies. And for any strategy you choose, including the probabilistic strategies, there's going to be a long-term growth rate of the population. All right, so it will grow or shrink exponentially over time. And what you want to do is you want to find the strategy. In the context of beta gene, you want to find the strategy that maximizes this long-term growth rate of the population. And this is essentially what, um, what Ito talks about in his paper, but in a more mathematical general. Because right? he's talking about you know n different phenotypes, and, <coughs> and environments, and arbitrary switching rates. And it's beautiful and general. And he makes nice connections to information theory. But, uh, but it's possible to read that paper and then not actually understand what Bet hedging, or what any of these things are, quite right. Uh, so, um, so I, it's good to take the simple thing, but and, and then it's also noted that it's good to know that somebody like you know has thought about this very deeply and figured out all these beautiful things, right. Uh, and I know that that paper was hard, so don't, yeah, but it's only it's really like a two page paper, right? I mean, if you look at the text, so, uh, so it d- shouldn't take too much time just to get a sense of what he's thinking about, but then it's good also to be concrete in a simple situation, okay. So, what we want to know is that yeah, okay, over the long term, then what you can do is you can just say, well we're going to, the, the, the ratios of rain, no rain over the long term will be 3 to 1. Because right? over long term, it doesn't, and it doesn't matter what order they come in, because over the long run, it's all going to average out. We're assuming we're a large population size, so we don't have to worry about stochastic extinction. Right? The question is, does that, if, since we don't have to worry about stochastic extinction, then can we just say that we just calculate, for example, the mean, the mean weighted by these fractions of these of these numbers, right? and, and actually the, the the subtle possible thing is that uh, you have to—it's the geometric mean that is relevant, not the normal mean. Okay, and um, and that's somehow tricky when given these numbers, but um, it's sort of obvious if you just switch this to a zero. Okay, right? Because if it's a—if this is a zero, then is germinate going to be a good strategy? No, right? Because if because what that would mean is that. If, you're, if everybody always germinates, it may be that this, this number could be 1,000. And you're just, you know, it's wonderful, except that if at some low rate there's no rain and if this is a zero, then, then the population is dead. Right? And you'll always encounter that eventually. Right? So that just highlights that it's, it's the geometric mean you want to be, be focusing on. And in particular, we know that on average over the long term, there are going to be three of these years for each of these years. So we can just multiply the numbers. Right? So it's really going to be there's going to be three times where you double for each uh, one time that you divide by 10. Right? What you see is that over the long run, this population shrinks, right? whereas in this case, it's 1 times 1 times 1 times 1. Okay. Right, so the long-term growth rate slash shrinking rate of these populations is that the lo- on the long run, this population does not change in size. Whereas over the long run, this population shrinks. So in the geometric mean, the expected change in the log population, which is also the expected percentage change in the population, is that right? Yes, so I think that if you take the logs, it ends up being equivalent to yeah. But you have to make sure you just do it all reasonably. Uh, And I I guess what I want to highlight in this case is that uh, A, you have to be careful about taking averages, but B, uh, to get the intuition behind the situations where bet hedging, I think, is really valuable, it's situations where um, where this thing gets very small and this might become rather large, right? So you can imagine that this could be two hundred and this could be ten to the minus nine, or I don't you know, okay? Or if you'd like, you just say that's zero, okay? And it's clear that if it's if this is 0, then you can't germinate all the time, because then the population's definitely going to go extinct over the long run. Right? But this is also a situation where you get there's real tension between long run, uh, long-term and short-term situations if, if this probability is very small. right? But it's in these situations that it pays, in terms of the long-run growth rate of the population, to uh, do this some fraction of the time. Right? And it could be very small. It could be that only 1 and 10 to the 4 of say the cells enter this persister state that is resistant to antibiotics, okay? but uh, but it can maximize the long-term growth rate of the population. Okay. Uh, and there are various models uh, that uh, that you can write down for either seed germination or this or that. But uh, the the relevant thing is, for example, in the persister case, it might be that the rate of persister formation is. You know, <coughs> Is might only be one cell in 10 to the 5 or 10 to the 6. So a very small subpopulation of the cells are in this uh, so-called persister state. But uh, those cells, they have a couple of properties. One is that they are dividing slowly. Okay? That means there really is a cost associated with enter that persis- entering that persister state. But if it's only 1 in 10 to the 5, that means that, uh, th- that it's really a rather small cost in terms of decreasing the growth rate of the population. Okay? Uh, and those cells also. Uh, can be resistant to antibiotics. So you can select for them in the sense that you add a bunch of antibiotics and maybe only the persister cells are left after 12 hours. Okay. But even though, even though I say you selected for them, it, it's, not, um, it's not a true antibiotic resistance kind of mutation. Because if you take that persister population, you let it grow back up, what you find is that it is still sensitive to the antibiotic. Okay. Now it's also possible that at some low rate, maybe 1 in 10 to the 8, that you evolve resistance to an antibiotic. That's genetic resistance that stays with you, right? Whereas the persister kind of uh, resistance, this is something that is—it's um, a phenotypic switch, right? And if it's when it grows back up, it kind of reverts back to the original phenotype, which is being sensitive to the antibiotic. Okay? So that's the, that's the kind of the classic way that you distinguish between genetic resistance and uh, and this persister-based or phenotypic resistance. Yes. Yeah, That's right. So people. Uh, argue a fair amount about this it, it, there's a thought that it, there are these uh, toxin antitoxin modules in uh, in bacteria that um, can uh, be kind of, that are normally suppressed but can be triggered and then can lead to uh, these states entering although it this debate this ends up it's it, kind of a muddy debate slash subject somehow yeah but it, the idea is that there's some uh, something in the cell that is normally uh, normally repressed but then at some rate kind of activates and, and, and causes the cell to and of course, you can always argue about okay, did it evolve for this purpose or not? Because also, if you're if you're dividing slowly, then um, then you're going to be resistant to many things. But then there's also arguments that there are somehow more specific persister type states against particular assaults or particular antibiotics. Yeah, so I think that um, there are many there are many subtleties to this whole debate, but. Um, Any other questions about this idea of bet hedging or uh, okay. right. So I think that bet hedging is indeed one possible way that, or one possible yeah, way in which evolution could select for phenotypic heterogeneity in a population.? Right? So this is a population of seeds that are all in principle identical. You put them out and you, you plant them all, and they see the same environment. They don't all germinate. Right, but it's not that all those, those seeds that didn't germinate are dead, because actually the following year, they still go back and they, follow, they can follow some stochastic strategy. Right? So I just want to stress that right now we're considering the two extremes. But for bet hedging, you, you say probability, germinate. 1 minus p, don't germinate. And there's gonna, in general going to be some probability p that can be non-zero that, uh, that maximizes long-term growth rate of the population. uh, But I do want to talk about two other possible explanations, which is this idea of mixed strategies and altruism. Now, mixed strategies in some ways is an obvious one because we are we we just got done talking about mixed strategies in game theory, where there was this notion that in a given game sometimes this Nash equilibrium was a pure strategy, or the evolutionary stable state, but sometimes uh, at the equilibrium, there was a co- there was coexistence of these two strategies, and that could be either implemented by two different genotypes, or by one genotype implementing this uh, implementing both phenotypes. And right, so, this was uh, the the classic game that people talk about in this area is um, is this hawk dove game. We talked about this just a little bit in, in class. Uh, so, this is a model of animal conflict. Right, and the idea is you have a, you can, the animals can either be um, right, So the idea is that there are two animals, and they come across some uh, resource, and the resource could be food or it could be a mate or something else. Right, and the question is, um, should those animals fight for the resource, or should they back down? Okay. Now uh, the assumption in all this is that the hawk is the strategy that fights, and the dove is the strategy that backs down. OK? Now, uh, the question is, how, um, how do we assign uh, some sort of costs and benefits to these various strategies? Again, where this is the situation where we take the two-player game, and then we'll kind of generalize it to the population. Well, if two doves encounter each other, then um, they don't need to fight at all, right? and they just split the benefit. Okay, so there's some benefit to the resource, and they each get half of it. Okay. Now, of course, if, if a hawk meets a dove, the hawk actually does better, right? Because then the hawk gets the entire benefit, doesn't have to pay the cost. Okay? So already we can see from what I've said so far, is dove a Nash equilibrium? No. Right? Because you can already see that if a popu- if your opponent is a dove, it's better for you, well if you start in the situation where everybody's a dove, okay, so everybody's getting B over two, then one individual has the incentive to change strategies and get the full benefit. Because right, that, that hawk never has to fight anybody, because they're all, um, they will all back down. Right? Now, of course, this dove that fought that hawk, well, doesn't get any, uh, doesn't get any of the resource, but also doesn't, get, um, doesn't have to fight. Okay? However, the question is, well, what happens if two hawks meet? And that's the situation where they really go at it. Right? And what you might say is that uh, there's a 50-50 shot that they mu- you know, that each individual has a 50% chance of getting the benefit, but then also has to pay, um, has to pay this cost. And then you can decide whether you want to have, um, so I think it's normally parameterized, b minus c over 2. Right? The idea here is that you have a 50% chance of getting the benefit, but you have a 50% chance of getting beaten up. Okay? Very simple model. Now, in, um, the way that we normally parameterize this is that okay, let's say that we want. The Hawk wait, 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 what do I want to say? Under what, which circumstances will the, the Hawk strategy be a Nash equilibrium? That's right. If B is larger than C, then the hawk would be a Nash equilibrium, right? Which is actually what we don't want in this game. So what we typically assume is that um, the benefit is less than the cost. So in that sense, it's somehow not worth fighting for. And that means that neither strategy is a Nash equilibrium. So neither the hawk nor the dove uh, is a Nash equilibrium. Okay. Right. And indeed, you can calculate what the Nash equilibrium e- is. And it ends, uh, um, the, the Nash equilibrium is, is to follow a mixed strategy with some probability p star that is, um, I think, b over c. Right. So if there's a bigger benefit, right, p star is pr- probability of following the Hawk strategy. Um, okay. uh, but if, as the costs grow, then the, uh, this Nash equilibrium probability decreases. Okay. All right. So this is a case where it's a mixed strategy that is this Nash, Nash equilibrium. So this is a situation that displays what we call negative frequency dependent selection. You can see that the rare strategies do better than common strategies. The key way to think about this is that if you have a population of doves, then a rare hawk does better. However, if you have a population of hawks, then it's a rare dove that does better. And it's that kind of negative frequency dependence that pushes the population towards some equilibrium between the phenotypes. or it could be equal. Uh, it could be equilibrium between genotypes as well, because you could have pure strategists of a hawk and a dove, right? So different genotypes that just are different, you know. And the uh, the differences in fitness will naturally lead to evolution to an equilibrium hawk kind of frequency in the population that is equal to this, right? So this is, this tells us either about the equilibrium frequency of the genotype of hawk in the population, or it could be that it's a single genotype that implements. These two strategies with some frequency that is b over c. Okay. Now um, we um, so I'd say that this is a simple idea from the context of game theory. And the question is, in what circumstance might this actually arise in uh, in kind of real populations? Uh, Well. Uh, and, oh, before I say anything else, I, I do want to stress that all of you have played mixed strategies before because in, you know, in the rock paper scissors game, which we're going to be talking about more uh, in the coming, uh, coming week or so. Uh, you, know, the, the, right, you guys all know this that rock beats not paper, but rock beats scissors, scissors beats paper, paper beats rock. Right? So the, the Nash equilibrium of that game is to do one third, one third, one third. Right? Because if, if everybody's following that strategy, nobody has the incentive to change strategy. It's definition of the Nash equilibrium. Right. Is that the optimal strategy against any opponent? No. Right. And this is very important to point out because uh, it's once, when you think about these Nash equilibrium and everything in, the, in, in abstract terms, it's easy to get confused about when we say that it's, it's optimal, sometimes we say optimal or it's the solution of the game, that doesn't mean that it's the best response to any given strategy. And you know that because if you know that your little brother is going to play rock, then you know. Well, you de- depending on whether you want to make them happy or not, you know, you, you decide what to do, right? So it's it's clear that this one third, one third, one third thing is it can be the solution to the game, of the Nash equilibrium, without being the best response to any given strategy. Okay. Um, uh, so one of the things that we're doing in my group actually is is we're arguing that in the case of of yeasts that are exposed to mixed sugar environments, right? So yeast in uh, environments that contain a little bit of glucose and a little bit of galactose. Uh, what we and actually other people have found is that uh, there's a bimodal response. right? So there's, if you look at the, the number of cells as a function of uh, the, the, galacto-, the gal operon expression, so gal ex- the expression of the genes required to break down the galactose, what you see is that some of the cells activate the gal genes highly, some don't activate it at all. Right? So, the, so the question is, what might be an explanation for this phenotypic heterogeneity observed in a clonal population? And one way to think about this is that it could be the Im- implementation of some sort of foraging game. Right? So you can imagine a population of animals that, uh, that want to go and eat some berries. Right? So if there are two different food sources. Say there's a, uh, there are blueberries and there are red berries. You can imagine this is the kind of situation that would lead to negative frequency dependence. Because if everybody else goes and eats the red, uh, I guess the, okay, this was the blueberry. Right, so if everybody else goes and eats the blueberries, then it's better for you to eat the red berry, because you, get, you don't have to share it with anyone. Whereas if everyone else goes and eats the red berries, then it's better for you to, you to eat the blueberries. Okay? So, and that's, that's the kind of situation that would naturally lead to this so-called negative frequency-dependent selection, in which coexistence of the phenotypes is somehow the equilibrium condition. And that can be implemented either by different genotypes, or it can be implemented by a single genotype that, that follows both phenotypes. Incidentally, is this equilibrium? Does it maximize the fitness of the population? No. So what is it it that would maximize the fitness of the population? If everybody were a dove, right? Because, and you can you can go ahead and do this calculation, find out what the fitness of everybody is. But what you'll see is that. P start does not maximize fitness, does not maximize payout. All right. So in these games, the equilibrium is not necessarily fitness maximizing. Okay. All right. All right. So so far what we've done is we've given two examples of Different evolutionary drivers for phenotypic heterogeneity in a population, and I just want to highlight what I think is maybe the last big one, which would be uh, altruism. Um, And and this could sometimes people call it division of labor or sacrifice or so. Okay, Um, and the and a nice example of this is uh, colicin production. Okay, Okay, the idea is that uh, in uh, many many bacteria they they express these these colicins which are toxins, and we're going to read more about this later. So colicin okay, is a toxin, All right. And the the perhaps surprising thing is that uh, in many uh, so many gram negative bacteria like E. coli, when they make uh, when they make this colicin, the only way that it's released is cell lysis. Now, the question is, why, is it, why would it, why might it possibly do this? Okay. And, and the answer is perhaps that the, uh, if there's a plasmid that encodes the genes to make this toxin, it also encodes an immunity protein. What that means is that if one cell lyses, you know, so bursts open and releases the colicin, it will inhibit other bacteria, but not the bacteria that are uh, the clone mates that are related. So not the bacteria that also carry that plasmid. So it's important to note there that now when we talk about kin selection or relatedness, we're talking about the other cells that carry that, uh, that gene. So what's relevant is uh, that the plasmid that encodes this toxin will inhibit other bacteria that do not encode the toxin. Okay? Now you can see that this kind of lysis behavior has to be stochastic. Right? So there has to be phenotypic heterogeneity. And why is that? That's right. If, if if this plasmid always makes everybody lice, then it's not going to get very far, right? Um, but you can kind of imagine situations where if just one percent of the population lyses, but then inhibits the cells that don't carry that plasmid, then the plasmid can spread in the population. Okay. And and it's just yeah. So so this has to be stochastic. Right, so I think that this is another general explanation for why there might be phenotypic heterogeneity in the population. Right, all of these three explanations are both conceptually different, and they're experimentally different. Right? They make different uh, falsifiable predictions about what's, um, what's driving that phenotypic heterogeneity. In this field, I think often when people see phenotypic heterogeneity, they immediately assume that it's bet hedging, uh, but, um, but these other two explanations I think are um, just as general and may be just as common And so we really have to go and make measurements to try to elucidate what's going on in each case.